And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Hey, this is a rock and roll museum. You guys don't belong in here. <laughs> They ranted, they fainted, their eyes were glassy, some pulled their hair out, some tore their dresses, they threw notes of a very uh, undesirable nature on the stage. I'll tell you all about it. Welcome to Long Play, a podcast where nerds rock out with their Spock out. Welcome to Long Play. My name is Bob Fisher. Long Play is uh, one of those shows where a couple of podcasters get together and talk about their favorite albums. Tonight is even more special to me because uh, even though I've talked about a lot of albums here on Long Play, tonight we're talking about possibly my favorite album of all time. And I knew when I was going to do this that it would be nice to have someone on the show with me who ranks it pretty high in their favorite albums category, list. So, joining me tonight for this very special long play, you know him, you love him, Mr. Back to the Bends himself, Paul Spataro. Hey, thanks, Bob. Thanks for having me on. And I guess you know me, you love me. 
or you hate me. Either one is okay. As long as I'm getting some reaction, I'm good. That's that, that's that's the way it works, I think. Well, I'm really looking forward to this. I am really, really looking forward to this. When we talked, um, you know, behind the scenes on Facebook and uh, decided to do this. And I guess we should tell that because they've already seen the graphic if they've downloaded, so they know what we're talking about. But just to be clear, uh, the album we're going to talk about tonight is... Uh, either my favorite album of all time or my second favorite album of all time, The Beatles' Abbey Road. And just just to, just to throw it in, yeah, I, I I'd have to sit down and really go through everything, but off the top of my head, quite possibly my favorite album of all time as well. So this should be absolutely fun. Well, the, the danger is that we're going to turn into Chris Farley with Paul McCartney saying, <laughs> "Yeah, and this song, <laughs> this song is great. This song is great." But hopefully, you know, and and. And you're right about that, because I'm trying to walk this line, uh, because my head, other than, some people may know me from my little Superman show that I do over there on my little corner of the world, and it's the only Superman podcast, so it should be easy to find. Nobody else does any <laughs> Superman podcasts, so, uh, but my head is full of trivia uh, and minutia about Superman. Well, the other side of my brain is filled with the trivia and minutia of the Beatles. So I'm trying to walk that line between making this an entertaining show about my favorite album to turning it into a history lesson of the Beatles. You know, we don't want to do that. But in brief, before we actually get to the album, if this is also one of your favorite albums, you must be a Beatles fan. I doubt that just this is the only Beatles album, and you say, wow, that's the only Beatles album, my favorite they, album. They have other ones? They, yeah. <laughs> but I heard uh, rumors that they broke up. Yes, yes they did. Uh, but are you a Beatles fan? Absolutely. Okay, so, because uh, to me, there's the Beatles and then everybody else. Yeah, pretty much. I mean... I guess if I had to go number two all time, not necessarily on my list, but if I'm just saying, you know, rock, classic rock, who's number two on the list just for all around, mm -hmm. probably the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. But to me, they come in a, you know, there's a good distance between first and second for me. Right. If anybody's interested, uh, Chris Honeywell and I did the Some Girls album on long play about i don't know maybe a year ago yeah ago. yeah it's probably around number episode three or four i think um but yeah um you know i agree the beatles are up there and then then there's everybody else so how did you actually get into the beatles when was your beginning with them because you're well, younger you know, than i am we just as toss you're about 10 I 11 love, years younger than i me. love having some, somebody who's my friend who's not younger than me it's nice <laughs> yes. once in a while because almost <laughs> yeah. everybody on this network is younger than me yeah yeah. Thank you very much, Bob. My, my pleasure for adding to the bell curve on the other end. My, my pleasure. I think but, uh, I do. I think I might actually be the oldest guy to regularly appear of any kind on the two true freaks network. Uh, I don't uh, think there's any who's older. Yeah, than I, I, I got to say you probably are. Probably but, are. But, yeah. but at heart, you might be the youngest. Guy. <laughs> yes, I think so. That's funny. A lot of people say that about me. Hmm. Interesting. So anyway, how did you get into the Beatles? So, you know, I was born in 62. So the Beatles were already in existence. By yes, the they time were. They I were playing around. the Cavern Club and getting ready to come over. Beatlemania had not actually started yet. My two earliest memories of the Beatles, and I'm not sure which one comes first, was on a, you know, children's record player, uh, having my sister's copy of A Hard Day's Night and playing it over and over again, mm -hmm. and watching the Beatles cartoon. Oh, yeah. I forgot about Those the Saturday morning Beatles cartoon. Then, you know, I, I remember as they went along, and 
I, I remember like, you know, getting into the seventies after the Beatles had already broken up, I still kind of had a, uh, a younger taste in music. I didn't, you know, I hadn't matured into rock and roll all that much until I was in my early teens. Mm-hmm. The first album that I considered to be an adult album that I purchased was Revolver. Mm, okay. So I, I, you know, as soon as I was ready to listen to more mature music, uh, you know, that uh, the Beatles was where I gravitated right away. And before you knew it, I had every, every album on vinyl by the Beatles. Uh, I remember, you know, Venus and Mars came out by Paul McCartney and Wings. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, sitting and listening to listen to what the man said and thinking to myself, man, he's getting so old. This music's not going to be coming out too much longer. <laughs> Meanwhile, what, what was he? Maybe 37? Yeah, maybe like in his 30s when he did Venus and Mars, which is one of my top three uh, McCartney albums. I think Band on the Run, Venus and Mars, and I actually like uh, Red Rose Speedway that a lot of people don't uh, even remember. But That's one I owned on cassette. <laughs> Red Rose I did not Speedway? have on vinyl. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've always had a very, very soft spot for Wings Over America. I was at there. Uh, I saw McCartney live in the Wings Over America tour at Washington, D.C. Cap Center. I did not get to see him live until Flowers in the Dirt was out. Ah, okay. So in the late 80s was the first yeah. time I saw well, him. Well, that was the last time I actually saw him live was that 76 concert. Uh, I saw him both Friday and Saturday night. But uh, he put on a good show. McCartney put on a good show. Yeah, my biggest disappointment, because I had seen him three times in that Flowers in the Dirt tour, my biggest disappointment with seeing McCartney live was the little things that he throws out that seems like he's thinking of them off the, the top of his head. He does them in every show. So every you know show. They're all very carefully staged. And and seeing that curtain pulled back was a, just a touch disappointing. Yeah, that was what it was kind of interesting about seeing him two nights in a row, because the second night was the identical concert and the like you say the things we thought were little quips. Oh, this is for my friend Johnny or whatever he would make the little joke before while he moved from the guitar to the piano. He did it every night. That was the same thing. It was a well rehearsed you know piece of theater really Mm -hmm. and uh, but nonetheless it was not uh any less entertaining for that my as far as the beatles go my my uh i've told this story before i did see the beatles in 1965 or six their final american tour nice but i I didn't hear them i mean i saw them you just heard the screaming i heard but that's all we heard it was at rfk stadium it was an outdoor concert and they ran out of one of the dugouts to the center about the second base and then the screaming started and the girls started pushing and we were at the first base dugout line in the bar uh, I was 13. The bar was right at my chest. It was killing me. So I, I didn't really hear them. I was scared to death, to be honest with you, at the Beatles concert. I was absolutely scared to death. I didn't think I was going to get out of there alive. Girls yeah. were passing out. Cops were everywhere. You didn't hear them. Some people who were at the Shea Stadium concerts, and they did not have experiences that were much different than yours. Yeah, it was not a pleasurable experience. You know, the only thing I can say now is a friend of mine, uh, who is now one of my best friends, he grew up in uh, uh, Alexandria, Washington, D.C. area. His father worked for the government, and he was at that same concert. He's two years older than me, and he was at the same concert, but he actually had one of the seats up on the at the stadium side because they went to football games there all the time. So they knew the stadium and they knew everything. And he had a nice seat and said, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about, Bob. It was a very pleasant 
show. Well, not from my point of view. I was, I was scared to death as a thirteen-year-old kid. I wanted to get out of there. And and as as an old older concert goer at this point in my life, uh, I want to hear the musician. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I, I, me too. I don't want to go and hear screams, and yeah. I want to I want to sit back and just take it all in and enjoy it. Yeah, me too. Uh, most recent real concert I've gone to was Billy Joel at the Garden. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, back in October, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, very, very pleasant experience at this point. Yeah, me too. I'm, the, I'm like that, too. I want to know where I'm going to sit. I want to sit, you know, and get actual seat and be comfortable and listen to the music. My Beatle, real quickly, my Beatle thing is that um, I remember on the Sunday night when they first made their Ed Sullivan appearance, and I watched it, I thought, eh, eh. Because I was not a big fan of their early "I want to hold your hand, she loves you" stuff. Um, it, it just didn't do much for me. But when I got their first couple of albums, the first album and particularly uh, the second Beatle, well, it was split up. the The UK album is different, and if you bought the CD today uh, with the Beatles, it would have what was released in America as album one and album two yeah in in america released under the very clever title the beatles second album the beatles second album and off of that album there was some great rock and roll stuff that they did that that's the stuff i liked the covers that they did please mr postman You know, that kind of stuff. I thought one of my favorites was Kansas City.
just or, thought, or no. rock and roll music. Yes. Little Leeds loved it. And to me, I thought, that's the Beatles. They're a good rock and roll band. At Rubber Soul, uh, I realized these guys were more than, you know, just a club rock and roll band playing somebody else's covers. And that's when I went back and made sure that I had... Uh, meet the Beatles with the Beatles, Beatles' second album. I just bought everything they Before had. Before Revolver that. was Rubber Soul, I think, wasn't it? And then, that's, then, then we broke out with Sgt. Pepper. Sgt. Pepper. But, and this is how I want to get into Abbey Road, is because you can't really talk about Abbey Road without talking about, first, the White Album and the Let It Be sessions. People will think a lot of times, and you can almost do this with any Beatles album, uh, and Sergeant Pepper and Revolver is a good example of that. Sergeant Pepper, uh, the recording sessions, a lot of the songs recorded for Revolver and Sergeant Pepper were recorded during the same recording sessions. Uh, after the Beatles got to be Beatles and became huge, they weren't like other bands that basically wrote the music, figured out what they were going to do, and then went into the studio to record it. The Beatles booked to the recording studio time, and then they would come in with their individual kernel of an idea. And by this point, after Revolver for the Sgt. Pepper times, it would be, you know, the guys bringing it in. And then, uh, uh, you know, Paul would say, I've got a new song. It's getting better all the time. And John would say, couldn't get much worse. That's how they worked after that point. And that's why I say, uh, now that we're going to start to get into Abbey Road, you can't really talk about Abbey Road without talking about the White Album and the Let It Be album. Abbey Road was the 11th released album, but the 12th recorded. Four or five, actually, of the songs on Abbey Road were written and partially recorded for the White Album. The White Album came about because after their uh, stint with the Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, they just wrote all three of them. I say three because Ringo didn't really write a lot of music, but uh, uh, John, Paul, and George wrote a tremendous amount of music during that little uh, retreat or whatever they want to call that thing. And many of the songs that are on Abbey Road were written for or written during the time of, uh, of the White Album. And after the White Album, to me the White Album, uh, and John actually suggested this first for the White Album and then Abbey Road and got vetoed both times. He wanted to put for the White Album all of his songs on one side, all of Paul's songs on one side, all of George's songs on one side. Uh, it became a double album, four-sided uh, album. And uh, John thought it would just be funny because they weren't really writing together at that point. And the White Album is, the, to me, the biggest example of that. It is, uh, even though I still consider it a Beatles album, of all of their work, the White Album is the most, um, I'm not sure how to say that, but it's... Individualistic? Yes, exactly. Each song screams the writer. You know, there's no doubt in your mind when you pop any one of those songs on from the White Album. You know exactly who wrote the main bo- that song that song is them uh, I, I think you see that on on this album that we're going to do as well though yeah in fact one of my thoughts and we'll talk about it when we go, start going over individual songs is there are songs that you can hear how they were advancing as artists into solo artists yes and some of the songs to me 
sound very clearly. You can put them on solo albums that came out shortly after this, mm-hmm. and they would fit in very, very cleanly. And and again, we'll get back to that. But I, I agree with you with that. Where the white album is is the first part, first time you could really hear that separation. Yes, and and hear them becoming more individuals in in the type of material they were writing. And you see, and that's what led them into now because in in chronological terms, after they left the studio, and and the white album was about to be released. They went back into the studio to do, at the time it was called the Get Back Sessions, but became Let It Be because the song Let It Be became so popular. Um, and then Paul's idea was let's let's film it, make a movie of the process. Now, th- everything about that idea was wrong at that time and place. Uh, to date, the Beatles have never re-released or remastered uh, the movie, the movie has never been let it be movie has never been re-released where hard day's night has and help has even magical mystery tour has been redone and has been shown periodically on, on network or NPR television, the let it be movie. And I remember watching this, uh, in the theater when it was first released because, Oh my God, it's the Beatles. Great. It's studio. It's going to be them live. This is going to be great. And for the first hour and a half of that movie, I'm pulling my hair out. I'm thinking, oh, my God, these guys need to get as far away from each other as they can. They don't like each other, let alone want to record with each other. You can hear them fighting. John and Yoko are over in the corner just dancing and carrying on. Paul is being finicky about every note played. Ringo wants to get out of there. He said he was so stoned most of the time. He hated the Let It Be movie, the Let It Be session. Everything about it was wrong. You, if you go back and find some of the bootlegs and, and watch it and even listen to it, there are parts where you'll hear Paul trying to tell George how he wants a certain thing to go. And George just says, look, I'll play it any way you want. Just tell me how you play it so we can get I the hell out of here. I so well. Isn't that amazing how those scenes just stick out to us? We remember it. And so that was the Let It Be session. So after they left the studio, with the Let It Be session. Oh, and by the way, in that movie, and I want to just put a, a clean ending to the Let It Be movie, for the first hour plus, like I said, it's terrible. It's it's hard to watch if you're a Beatles fan. But then the last 20 minutes or so of that movie is where they go out on the rooftop of the Abbey Road, Abbey Road Studios and do that, what's become known as the rooftop concert. And then watching that, you go, oh, yeah, that's why they're the greatest band ever. That's why. And just in those that 20 minutes of them doing the songs that they were torturing you over while you're watching it, then they play them as a band. And that was the last time they played live as a band was during that rooftop concert. But before that ever released, they hated the, everything about it. They shelved the Let It Be recordings, put it on the back burner. Everybody was fighting. Phil Spector had come in to produce it. George Klein was there. I mean, they were having so many fights. Everything was bad. Three weeks after they leave the recording studio for Get Back, which became Let It Be, Paul goes to George Martin and says, let's do one more like we used to do in the old days. And George Martin said, fine, I'll produce it, but under these rules. 
and he listed a bunch of rules and most of the rules were basically to keep John in in the group because by this point John had unofficially left the Beatles. He was really not doing anything. He was already trying to get the Plastic Ono band together. He had done some home recordings with Yoko. John had already mentally left the Beatles after the uh, Let It Be sessions. He's gone. Paul left officially a year later. So Paul went back to the other three and said, uh, George Martin has agreed to produce it if you guys want to come and do this and let's, you know, like the old days and do one more. And they all agreed. And without it actually being said, this is going to be the last that we'll ever do it together. Uh, In subsequent interviews with them, they all pretty much in their brain thought, this is the last time we're going to do this as the Beatles, at least for a very long time. And that's, they all kind of rose to the occasion and brought, I think, their best foot forward. The end of Let It Be, Let It Be was such an un- unhappy record, really, even though there's some great songs on it. I really thought that was the end of the Beatles, and I thought that I would never work with them again. I thought, what a shame to go out there like this. So I was quite surprised when Paul rang me up and said, we're going to make another record, would you like to produce it? And my immediate answer was, only if you let me produce it the way we used to. And he said, we, we, do, we do want to do that. I said, John included. He said, yes, honestly. So I said, well, if you really want to do that, let's do it and let's get together again. And it was a very happy record. I guess it was happy because everybody knew it was going to be the last. But that's really how Abbey Road came. At least four of the songs from these recording sessions, the Abbey Road recording sessions, came from the White Album recording sessions that the Beatles didn't want for the White Album. One of George's songs he had started back at the Maharishi uh, time and actually had it for Revolver and it never made it because George in those days got one token song because you get, you know, short time and John and Paul were prolific and George was kind of intimidated. But for Abbey Road, the four of them went back into the studio in February of 1969 and off and on for the next, well, until August 20th of 1969, laid down the tracks for Abbey Road. You know, my understanding of these sessions is as much as they wanted them to be, you know, a return to the past and and the way they used to work together. I think clearly they didn't work together the way they used to. And there, there was a lot more individuality uh, as, as demonstrated by our ability to see the songs as so clearly, uh, you know, relating to one particular artist. I mean, there's some points where the extra added touch improved the songs. Right. But there was definitely some divisiveness going on. I think Paul became very, uh, for lack of a better word, he was very much a perfectionist on some of the songs uh, and wanted to do things his way to the point of maybe even annoying the other guys. Uh, I think John kind of wanted control over things to the point where uh, he and Yoko had been in a kind of a bad car accident before shortly before these sessions began or or during the sessions i'm not mm-hmm. sure it was right and, after they started recording them and and they actually had a bed brought into the studio so that yoko could be there to oversee everything that was going on yeah that didn't so, cause you know, any that, tension that's a little heavy handed <laughs> and i think i think that you know the people who blame the beatles breakup on yoko i don't think it's as simple as that but i don't think that it's 
you know, I don't think that it wasn't a factor. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think at that point there was a lot of factors, and that just added even more, um, you know, tension to the to the mix. You know, they were ready to split up. They all had girlfriends, wives, families. They all wanted to go and do different things anyway. And uh, you're right. After these sessions started. John and Yoko were in a car wreck and the doctors wanted her limited to bed. They wanted her in bed. So he literally brought a hospital bed into the studio, you know, and it was like one thing. It's one thing in like the let it be sessions where between takes, they'd go off and dance in a corner somewhere. Now she's actually in the studio saying, no, 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 let's do that again. What? <laughs> on Dude, a Beatles record, <laughs> yeah. Have you heard yourself sing? Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But uh, you know, just just as as a final thought from me, is you said there's there's one song apparently that you're not fond of. Uh, I'm fond of every single song on this album. So we, whatever song you're not fond of, we will disagree. <laughs> well, and to say that I'm not fond of it, it's like saying you know that uh, I don't know. I prefer chocolate ice cream to you know. Rocky Road or something. I still love Rocky Road ice cream, but if they're both sitting on the table, I'm probably going to the chocolate. You know. Mm-hmm. So me right, saying me saying that there's one song on here that I could live without on this album it doesn't mean that I hate the song. And it might be like I was saying earlier, where I bring a little baggage. I think knowing. You know, it was never really my favorite song on here, but now knowing the backgrounds to it makes me kind of dislike it even more. But right, so when, when when we get to that one, I guess you'll point that out. We'll, yeah, we will. Uh, but um, again, with the history going on, and you're absolutely right. Even though they all agreed to George Martin's terms, uh, there was apparently a lot of tension still in the studio, and it was still. John wrote this song. Paul maybe added the bass line or added this line or two there. But then the next one, it would be a, strictly a George song that they sang harmonies on. There's four songs on this album that John had absolutely nothing to do with. Nothing. No background vocals, no guitar, nothing. And then there are songs where all four of them are there. And there are songs with they did three track harmonies of the of john paul and george doing the harmonies there's another so let's before we get too far down the the rabbit hole here abbey road after they get into the studio they start going they start recording uh things seem okay they grab one of the first songs which is the last song on side one but that was the first song they recorded But then the organizational was done, the after-recording session, the session that we think makes this an album, as opposed to a collection of singles, falls directly in the lap of George Martin and Paul McCartney. It was post-production that turned this into the collection of good songs into a great album. And since this is really about the album, that I think needs to be you know, given credit where credit is due. You do, I think you do see some of the genius, and I don't like to use that word too lightly, mm-hmm. of George Martin and how he handled producing the Beatles when you compare it to what was done on Let It Be. Yes. 
Because because if you if I, I just assume knowing you the way I do that you have uh, a copy of Let It Be Naked. Absolutely. And then you hear the raw tracks without all the production and you hear how much better it was without the interference. Without Phil Spector's interference. Yes, absolutely. The, and then you hear this one and you hear what George Martin did and what George Martin did is is wonderful. Right. And other people will say that, you know, Eric Clapton's The Fifth Beatle or people who played Billy on Preston. Billy Preston who plays on this album who gets credit for other things um, is considered The Fifth Beatle. No, no, no. The Fifth Beatle is George Martin. Granted, from day one, the Beatles, John and Paul mostly wrote the material, but George Martin was able to produce it. He was able to teach them things that when when their musical knowledge started to expand and they wanted to write songs like Taxman and the stuff we hear on Revolver and the stuff we hear on Sgt. Pepper, which eventually leads to this, that's George Martin as... Um, not a heavy hand. Some critics actually panned Abbey Road originally on its original release for the Moog synthesizer and what they called George Martin's heavy-handed production. Uh, I, that was, to me, kind of staggering that they would think that. This would be a totally different album without what George Martin and actually Paul McCartney did in post-production with this album. We get right to the first song. I say get right to the first song an hour in. Before we get to the first song, should should we discuss the first thing that jumps out at you when you get this album? The very, very famous and iconic cover. The cover. Go right ahead. Just, Just, you know, for anybody who is listening to this and is not a Beatles fan. Uh, this is probably the, in my opinion, the second most iconic album cover image ever after Sgt. Pepper's. Right. Uh, it's it's the Beatles, all four of them, very simple, walking across the street at Abbey Road Studios in London mm-hmm. uh, with the zebra stripes in the crosswalk, all four of them walking across, John in a white suit, uh, George in uh, denim, Ringo in a black suit and Paul in in uh, basically in a suit with no shoes, right. which lent, lent uh, I don't know how, but it lent some credibility to the rumors that Paul was dead. Well, there's all uh, kinds of it. The pole bearers. I'm not. Ex- I'm not exactly sure how having no shoes makes you dead. Yeah. But uh, apparently there was apparently, some some religious people said that's how you're buried. You don't really have shoes on. Yeah, but would they get his body out of the ground to yeah, <laughs> to, yeah. To, to take the picture? But that was to see. And the Volkswagen in the background has twenty. The license plate on the Volkswagen is two eight I F twenty eight if, and that was supposed to be the age he would have been had he lived from that car crash he was supposed to have back prior to Sergeant Pepper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No. Again, I got way too much Beatle trivia in the brain. We no, that, I, I, I knew that I knew that one is Yeah, well, we could that. we could do a whole show just on the 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 uh first of all the fans that started the rumors and then with Sergeant Peppers with them picking up and playing with the rumors, I think intentionally. Oh absolutely on the Sergeant Pepper and then going even to Magical Mystery Tour with John saying he's the walrus when clearly Paul was the wall. It just goes on and on and on and on. It's just staggering how much And then Glass Onion, the walrus was Paul. Yes, all uh, of that. Yeah. When but it, clearly I, I would say of 
like I said, this, to me, this is the second most iconic album cover ever. And in the current day and age, I don't think that's ever going to be surpassed because now album covers don't have the relevance that they did in years gone no, by. No, they, anyway. they really don't. And especially at this time period with the Beatles. Um, and it's such a, you know... Uh, the nice thing also about the internet is that the other pictures from this photo shoot are online. So you can see them uh, walking across the street. You can see them standing there. You can see them in different orders. Apparently and, the entire session only took like 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, they just did it really quick. It was just, you know, almost an afterthought. Let's, oh, we and need a picture. Let's go do it. It is probably the single most recreated album cover of all time by fans. Yeah, it's the Action Comics number one of of Beatle album or album covers actually um everybody's done it and you know there's even now a live webcam set up f- pointed at uh, that intersection you can get online and if you if you google abbey robe webcam abbey road webcam there's a live uh webcam right there watching it that's wild yeah it is and you probably stay on long enough you'll find people recreating the cover probably although it's from a different the camera's up on a pole from a different angle but it's that intersection that that street it's very very cool very interesting actually i only found that last night uh thinking maybe i should do a research before we recorded and i'm thinking what am i looking this stuff up for i just this is you know and and the the other thing is of any album that we can do on uh, long play yeah Every album I've done, this is my fourth long play, I think. Mm-hmm. And every time I've done one, I've sat and I've listened very carefully to the album again to make sure that I, you know, kind of just bone up on it a little bit. Right. This is probably the least I've needed to do one. Yeah, me too. Me too. I, I did a little panic today and I did listen to it uh, once through, just cranked it up. I was in the house alone, so I just, you know, cranked it. And I uh, uh, thought, yeah, it still is a good album, isn't it? It's still a really good album. Forget all the backstabbing and the fighting and, and what it took for them to get this album recorded. The fact that they did record it, they put the pieces together, and it's just, it, you can't really go out on a higher note than this. You know, there are some people that say that this guy or that guy should have stopped at a certain point. I think the Beatles as a group stopped at the right time. It's the top of the game. We ready to get into the album now? Yeah, I think we've talked enough. Uh, <laughs> we, we, we could just make this a Beatles retrospective and not talk any album. But <laughs> yeah, I think, I know. You know, this we're could, supposed to talk songs here. This could be end up being the longest long play ever for the shortest album talked about ever. But uh, the very first song on the album starts out with one of John's songs. Uh, originally called uh get it together and he wrote it for (laughs) i don't know if you knew this or not he wrote it for uh timothy leary in his um campaign against ronald reagan i think when ronald reagan was running for governor of california uh, I, I did not know that, but yeah. in getting ready for today, I did a little bit of research and I read that. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, so, so it's printed somewhere. That's good. Because yes. I had heard that a long time ago that uh, obviously at this time period in the Beatles' life, John and Yoko are you know attached at the hip at this point. John has become more political than ever. Uh, he was already getting ready for you know Plastic Ono Band. He's mentally checked out of the Beatles. Um, but this is a song that he wrote um, for Timothy Leary as a as a uh, campaign song, 
And he also got in trouble for the opening line of the song because it's a direct steal from Chuck Berry's. Um, yeah, the song You Can't Catch Me. Uh, you Can't Catch Me. Exactly. I was going to catch us if you can. But, uh, no, You Can't Catch Me, the Chuck Berry song. Here come old Flat Top. He come grooving up slowly. He's got juju eyeballs. He won Holy Which Roller. The, uh, the Chuck Berry song opened with Here Comes Here comes a Flat Top. He was moving up with me. Yes, and obviously Chuck Berry's song was about a, a cop catching up to him uh, in a in a cop car where Chuck Berry is, you know, uh, driving really fast, pushing the button, shooting out wings. Here, oh God, it's a good song too. That's a really good song. <laughs> you can't catch me. Uh, but now on this album. The first part of it actually was recorded during the White Album session and mixed with the session that they actually got together to do uh, for Abbey Road. So first song starts out really great. It's a total John song. Uh, Paul does sing some harmonies on it, and Paul's got some nice slap bass in it. Uh, But this is a John song from start to finish, pretty much. And it's come together. This this one, uh, it like you say, it's total John. I think you can just dub me in on every song when we start talking about it, saying I love this song. <laughs> yes, I think so. I don't think there's a loser on the on the album. It's 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 a total John song. In fact, there was some slight controversy over it in that uh, Paul wanted to do some live background vocals on it, and John just kind of kept yesing him to death. And then recorded his own background yes, vocals. Yes, exactly. And and Paul is in there at some points doing it, but he's really de-emphasized as much as possible. And you know, like you said, he does have some nice bass lines in here that get a little heavy at some points. But uh, but it's a John song. Yeah, this is this is a total John song. Um, and for people out there who don't, you know, tear each song apart like I do, kind of a general rule of thumb is that whoever is singing the lead wrote the song so if paul is singing it's a paul song if john is singing it's john it's george it's you know other than ringo whoever usually sings the lead wrote the song there are exceptions to that rule but most of the exceptions were on the first two or three albums when john and paul literally were sitting at a table with each other in pencils and notebooks exchanging lines and verses and stuff by this point 
one of them would bring either a kernel of an idea or a pretty flushed out idea and the other might add uh, uh, a line uh, a verse uh, you know a guitar lick a bass lick might add a little piece to it here and there but pretty much individual and you'll hear us do this as we go through this album by saying this is a john song this is a paul song this is a ringo song we'll let you know that uh throughout these but that's a general rule of thumb on the singer if the singer whoever the lead singer is that's who wrote the song if you want to tell the difference between guitars people usually think for example uh, that uh, Paul is a bass guitar player, George was lead guitar, and John did rhythm guitar. Well, John did a lot of lead guitar work for the Beatles. The difference is, take the song Revolution that starts with that raspy guitar sound. If it's a raspy, gnarly, angry guitar lead, more than likely that's John. If it's a clean guitar sound, uh, uh, you know, I almost want to do it, but if it's a nice clean sound or almost country sound, that's George. I've, I've always said that, you know, whenever we've done these shows, I'm not a musician. I, I know what I like. <laughs> that's really what it comes down to. Uh, what I always thought of George's guitar is George is a somewhat less flashy but very similar in style to Eric Clapton. Right. Whereas John, like you said, I think you said the raspy, harsh guitar. You know, John is John is more of a uh, a prototype into what heavy metal might have event. You know, was eventually going to become. Yes. You know, he wasn't doing heavy metal, but he was interested in it. You know, right. that kind of thing. Neil Young was uh, highly influenced by John's guitars. Uh, you know, you can go to people who came after the Beatles. Uh, everybody from you know, Pink Floyd on, you can almost trace it directly back to some aspect of the Beatles that they tapped into for their own thing to then do their own thing on. But as a general rule for people who who often find it hard to decide, well, who wrote that song? Uh, I think your thing about Eric Clapton with George, they were very, very close friends. To the point of sharing a wife. And to the point of sharing a wife, exactly. Uh, and on the White Album, I guess George is, you know, probably the best song he did for the White Album was While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And Eric Clapton did the lead guitar on that song on the single. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about that is he did it in two takes. He did one take and then said, mm, that didn't sound beatly enough, made a slight adjustment to his guitar and did it again the second time. And the second lead is the one we hear on the final white album recording. I mean, that just shows, you know, he just, he, his ear said, and for years, I, you know, right off the bat, I didn't think that was Eric Clapton. I think it was a year or two after the White Album was actually released because they didn't give credit on the album. There's nowhere on that album, the White Album, that it says, oh, by the way, Eric Clapton did the lead guitar here. By, by the time I was familiar with the song, that was a well-known fact. Mm. Uh, I mean, I hate to, to go too far afield here, but I... I just remember there's a version of that song. I think it's on George's Live from Japan album. Mm -hmm. And uh, he toured with Clapton, and Clapton did the lead, obviously, in that song. And just a, a marvelous live version of the song. And at the end, when he's you know giving credit, he points to Eric Clapton. He says, Eric Clapton with Psycho Guitar. Yeah, I think that is the Japanese uh, part. There's also a great, great version 
uh, on the George Harrison's uh, concert for Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. And they exchange leads in that. They both they go back and forth between Clapton and Harrison. And in that version, uh, you can hear the distinct differences between Eric Clapton and George Harrison, basically playing the same lead back and forth, talking to each other, basically, with their guitars. And um, that's a great, great album, too, for a live album. My brother-in-law album. was at that concert. I've always been jealous of him for that. Who was there? My brother-in-law. Really? Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I would have been very, very jealous to be at that concert because uh, that was one of the first mega super group bring out everybody. And even the Ravi Shankar bit on that is just incredible. Well, from what I understand, there was quite the smell of uh, burning substances going on during that session. You think? <laughs> <laughs> well, that was, you know, back in that in those days for those of you who are uh, younger than bob and myself uh when i used to go to concerts at madison square garden in the late 70s and the early 80s which is when i went to a tremendous number of concerts yeah me too that was my uh, height of my concert going was late 70s through the mid 80s but smoking in arenas and concert halls was not against the rules at that time not at all uh, so you could smoke cigarettes if you liked but generally as soon as the lights went down the smell of cannabis would just overcome you the blue cloud of thoughtfulness <laughs> the yeah. second the lights went down the second they went like, down just take just take a deep breath you don't have to smoke anything no, and you get no, high. the contact highs were uh, all over the place uh and in fact uh there's a uh, beautiful theater here in richmond called well i don't know what it's called now the trademark or the landmark i don't know what they call it now but when i used to go to shows there all the times a beautiful concert holds uh 3500 seats just gorgeous plush seats and you know huge chandelier it's you know it's worth the price of admission just to go in and look at this beautiful beautiful acoustic theater it's where the richmond symphony plays it's absolutely gorgeous but in the old days back then in the 70s before they remodeled it all of the gorgeous plush velvet seats uh each armrest on the left had a cup holder on the right had an ashtray Mm -hmm. so you were there, and you sm- you get comfortable. Got your drink on one side, and your smokables on the other side. It was, and everybody there. It was just smoke everywhere. Um, but that was part of it. So, people, how'd you like come together? The political song from John Lennon that uh, he got sued for because of <laughs> stealing a Chuck Berry line. And just to, to finalize that, uh, to settle that, they uh, they came with, up with an agreement that John would record three songs. Owned by the same, uh, what's it, Morris Levy on the yeah, uh, right I think story. Morris Levy on the the right uh, He recorded uh, what was it? You can you can catch me, uh, Yaya and uh, Angel Baby. Angel Baby. I was going to say Angel Baby was story. unreleased. Uh, so Levy Levy sued Lennon for breach of contract and was awarded six thousand seven hundred ninety five dollars. No kidding. Lennon countersued. After Levy released a an album of Lennon material using tapes, and was awarded eighty four thousand nine hundred and twelve dollars back. <laughs> so, I guess Levy should have just backed off a little. Yeah, bit. you're trying to fight a beetle there. You better watch out. Amazing. See, I didn't know that. See, more trivia just went into my brain. Very good. Uh, you know, it's amazing what you could find out just by looking on Wikipedia alone. And I went beyond <laughs> Wikipedia, but that fact I got from Wikipedia. All right, good. Uh, the next song we come to 
you know, we've the first song a John song, all the way John, pretty much. Second song is a George song. It's about as George as George can get. And in my mind, it's possibly one of the best love songs ever written. If if not the best, it's it's um, it's just an absolutely gorgeous, gorgeous love song, and it's total George. Except for I think one line towards the. I think John gave him a line. Other than that one thing to get him across from one phrase to another, this is a total George song, Something. I think there's a lot of people who would argue that this is the greatest love song of all time. Yeah. I'm not sure, but I wouldn't dismiss that thought. And I'd have to think hard before I'd come up with one that I'd say I like more. Yeah, I agree. Something in the way she moves. It's it's Well, well, there's no doubt of his total loyalty and love to the object of this song. There's also a vulnerability and a self-doubt that pervades it when when you say uh, you're asking me will my love grow i don't know i don't know that's that's strong those are strong lyrics yeah and you, you know, know they i think you you know you could sing along with it and you don't even realize but think about that think about what he's saying there i mean it, it's it's a very uh you know revealing moment it's, it's a very uh sensitive moment i think you tended to think well if there's going to be a single it would be john or me or john or me that would write it and then suddenly George just came up with this song. Something in the way she moves Attracts me like no other lover I think of the Beatles in their 20s writing these kinds of songs and i just want to say how the hell did you know (laughs) how did you know you had you don't have the life experience to know to this depth to this level and i think that's where the word genius again if the word genius can be put to anywhere it's with these four guys and george martin and 
uh, early on, George Harrison being totally intimidated by John and Paul, particularly when they kept writing one hit after another. It almost seemed like, and George is quoted somewhere of saying that uh, he was writing songs back in the early 60s, the same time that John and Paul was, but he wouldn't bring any of them to the group. Yeah, sadly for George, this is the first song he ever did that was the A-side of a single. And it was uh, put with the first song of this album, Come Together. Uh, and in fact, they called it a double A single. And it's the only single released from the songs of Abbey Road, even though another song later, and most people think it's been released because so many people have covered it. But this is another one where people have covered it from everybody from Elvis to Frank Sinatra to, you know, probably some heavy metal band. I'll bet ACDC. I wanted to, I wanted to talk about that with the cover versions. This is the second most covered song of all Beatles songs. Amazing. And uh, I'm going to throw it out to you, Bob, because I expect you're going to get it right. What's the most covered Beatles song? The most covered Beatles song yesterday. Absolutely correct. <laughs> this, this song has over 150 cover versions. Holy cow. And just for a list of some of the people who covered it, Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra, Ray Charles, James Brown, Shirley Bassey, Tony Bennett, Andy Williams, Smokey Robinson, Ike and Tina Turner, Eric Clapton, Joe Cocker, Isaac Hayes, Julio Iglesias, and Neil Diamond. And apparently James Brown was the favorite of George Harrison of the cover versions. I haven't heard 150 different covers of this, but I can honestly tell you I've never heard a cover of this that I didn't like. Yeah, me neither. And that, to me, speaks for the quality of this song. He wrote a song that no matter how you performed it, it's a beautiful song. Exactly. I have to look up to James Brown. James Brown is high on my list of favorite artists. I'd have to, but I don't remember right offhand his version of the song. I don't either, but I did read that that his was his favorite. Interesting, interesting. But yeah, you know, uh, and it's something that I have said since the 60s when somebody would ask me, why are you listening to that? And it didn't matter what it was. And I would say, well, because a good song's a good song. You know? Yeah, I, I never could understand when people said, oh, why you listen to that? It's old. Yeah. Well, I don't care if something's old. It's if it's good, good, it's good. It's a good song. If it's a good song, it's a good song. Uh, John actually said that uh, this was his favorite George song on the album. Paul went a, a step further and said it's uh, he thinks it's the best thing George ever wrote. Uh, and, and Frank Sinatra called it the greatest love song in the past 50 years. Wow. Wow. And that's he, he used to he used to or at least legend has it that he used to introduce it in concert as a Lennon and McCartney song. Yes, yes, I heard that he used to do that. I never actually heard him do that. Now you, you've you've heard the uh, live live from Japan. Yes, Harrison yes, concert. Yes, and in that he he does his little tribute to Sinatra, which I, I heard him on in an, on an interview where he was talking about that. He throws in there in Sinatra style. Stick around, Jack. It may show. <laughs> Which I love that Harrison yeah. had that playful streak. And in. the fact that they were aware of what else was going on in the world of show business and stuff. They weren't in a little bubble that some people think they were. They were very uh, aware of what was going on. I think Harrison in particular was probably the most aware of pop culture in general. Yeah, yeah. Because he had his involvement with the Monty Python people, producing movies, that type of thing. Uh, whereas, you know, McCartney, I, I always felt, was immersed in music. John was immersed in music and politics. Right. And Yoko. And Yoko. Uh, the other thing about this song, and, and I, I think it just goes to show, you know, a little bit of maybe bitterness after a relationship breaks up. In uh, Patty Boyd's autobiography, which I have read, 
Uh, she talks about how George wrote this song for her and how he played it for her. And it was the most beautiful thing ever. And over the years, jo- George has said, yeah, no, I didn't write it for her. I wrote it about <laughs> religion in general and the Harry Krishna movement. Yeah. And, but I, I suspect he did write it for, for Patty. I think he wrote it for Patty. But then because of all the Eric Clapton stuff and all that, then her, you know, her dalliances. Uh, I, I think he may have had just a little bit of, well, it wasn't for her. There's no one who has had more beautiful music written for her than Patty Boyd. Right. And you consider this, why does love got to be so sad? Layla, while my guitar gently weeps. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's amazing when you think about it. It is amazing. Just a, another, just, you know, personal factoid on this. I always thought that James Taylor was paying tribute to George in the song something about it's something in the way she moves mm, right other way but around. it turns out that song predated this and george was paying tribute to james taylor who was an apple recording artist at the time yes yeah i think i saw that on wiki a week or so ago after we decided to do this i think i did a quick wiki and that jumped out as something i didn't yeah. know either before i like i said I, I was always aware of the other song with the similar lyrics and yes. i thought again i thought i thought this predated that and that that taylor was homaging this song but it turns out it was the other way around well now we come to what is possibly the most contentious song on this album and by contentious uh i will say that the other three beatles hated this song with a passion with an absolute passion they hated this song and it caused multiple fights over two different album recording sessions Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Joan was quizzical, studied metaphysical science in the home. Late nights all alone with a test tube. Oh, oh, oh. Maxwell Edison, majoring in medicine, calls her on the phone. Can I take you out to the pictures, Joan? read to you the uh, section from wikipedia that i highlighted on this yes absolutely good because i found it interesting it said beatles guitarist george harrison described the song in 1969 as one of those instant whistle along tunes which some people hate and other people really like it's a fun song but it's kind of a drag because maxwell keeps on destroying everyone like his girlfriend then the school teacher and then finally the judge lennon described it as 
Paul as more of Paul's granny music. <laughs> now, is is this the one that you yes would put on the lower level yes. on the album? Yes. I uh, see. I'm I'm with with George's end where it's one of the people that I'm one of the people who really likes it that I see it as a fun song. Right. Uh, in, in researching it a little bit, apparently this is one of the ones where Paul became quite the perfectionist on it and wanted to record it over and, and over and, and over, over to the point where the fellow Beatles were just sick of it. Yes. Uh, I think this is one of the songs that Lennon did not appear. In not at all. He has nothing to do with this. And uh, I heard an interview with him once uh, and maybe I'll try to look it up if I can, but that, uh, like you said, just like you just read, uh, when asked about it, he said, it's another one of Paul's granny songs. Um, and he went on about Paul being a perfectionist and said, Paul tried to put it on the white album and we just wouldn't have anything to do with it. It was too complicated. He was trying to get us to do it over and over again. So I just didn't want anything to do with it. And then he brought it back for the Abbey road session and this was already after John and Yoko had had a car wreck. So uh, he was basically out of the studio for a couple of weeks and pretty much drove George crazy trying to get it. And I think that's where that quote comes from, where I'll play it any way you want. Just tell me what you want. And it was Paul trying to do it over and over and over again. So it was one of these songs where you... Uh, early on i used to love the song because i thought the same thing what a fun song and it's got a little dark belly with maxwell killing everybody it's kind of fun <laughs> okay but then i started to read about it and i could almost see paul's attitude and it just brought back memories of those arguments they were having during the let it be sessions and i'm so it's the kind of the thing where i'm bringing a little bit of baggage with me now that uh if it comes on in shuffle mode, it's going to be 50-50 whether I let it play or I skip to the next one. Uh, I let it play. You know? So uh, I'm not sure. I, I go either way. But it is a very, it's like George says, it's very singable. Everybody sings this song. Uh, it's also, and, and, and mimes the hammer. And mimes the hammer. Exactly. Everybody. So I can understand, and that's why I won't cut anybody down anytime, anywhere, any place who says this may even be their favorite Beatles song. Well, okay, yay. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say that. No, but, no. but I will never uh, uh, be judgmental, I think is a better way to put it. I will not judge you uh, harshly at all anyone who says they love this song uh, as a as one of their favorite quote Beatle songs uh, although this is like John said this is a Paul song this is so Paul oh no question it's it there's just you know uh, it's just Paul's telling one of his little stories again it's um, to me it's another rocky raccoon but not as clever or as funny it's you know what I'm saying it's another oh, one yeah of that, that's I never thought of it that way but yeah yeah, it's Rocky Raccoon, but I think I like Rocky Raccoon much better. Uh, but Paul has a bunch of these kinds of songs. Uh, you could even throw from Sgt. Pepper, When I'm 64, into this category. Uncle Albert, Admiral Hall. Uncle Halsey. Albert, yeah, exa exactly. So uh, it's nice to know that you actually know his, the, their, some of their uh, uh, solo stuff, too. Uh, that's, that's <laughs> yes, cool. I do. That's cool. I do like that, too. Now, the next song 
is another Paul song. And this one is pretty much totally Paul. There are some background vocals by the other guys. But I guess the really interesting note about this this next song is that Paul thought his voice sounded too uh, clean, too pure, too something. So he went back in the alleys at Abbey Road Studios. Apparently there's an alley behind Abbey Road Studios. And he went back behind the uh, in the alley and screamed at a brick wall at the top of his lungs, not worrying about uh, any kind of proper diaphragm vocal. Tra- he just wanted his voice to be harsh when he sang this song. And not a bad tune. It's actually one of the good old blues type rockers. It's yeah, very, very soulful. Very soulful. And it's um, both John and Paul have a real good, you know, feeling for old blues and old soul. And uh, they each put out kind of rock and roll albums. John called his rock and roll. Uh, Paul called his Run Devil Run. Right. right. And uh, both of those. It was originally released in Russia. The Run Devil the Run. States. I had to get a bootleg of it first. Yeah, I think I had a bootleg of it first, too. Uh, great album, though. Great album. Does an old uh, Ricky Nelson song called Lonesome Town on, mm-hmm. on that. Just, God, it's just beautiful. Uh, but Paul did that. He could do that. He could um, he could channel old blues guys and and little Richard and, and you know he was able to to do that from an early on time and uh, some people cut him down a little bit. They think, well, John, no, John is the one that had the harsh voice for others. They both did. They both could channel. Uh, earlier music and make it their own and i think in this particular song uh paul is doing just that he's channeling sam cook or little richard or wilson pickett or you know any well, who, of any did, of uh, those who did guys. Uh, try a little tenderness uh try a little tenderness was was uh, that uh, uh otis redding otis redding thank that's you that's who that's kind of who i hear there you go know. otis redding uh but uh, in, in the trivia end of this one is apparently he would only try to record this once a day if he didn't get it what he thought was the right recording that was it close up shop i'll come back tomorrow and try it again yes because back, he, to, the, back to his perfectionist yes uh, because he was putting so much strain on his vocal cords to do this and then even then when you knowing how much he tried to get a raspiness to his voice it really only shows up in in a couple of places that you can actually tell ah there it is it is really really raspy but uh, again a really really good song is called oh darling
Now, I- interestingly, on this one, uh, apparently Lennon felt he could have done a better job singing it and wanted to be the singer on this song. Yeah. But only relented because it was Paul's song. Paul wrote it. Paul wanted to sing it. Yes. But uh, but. He- he did feel in his, you know, in his heart that this song was more suited to his style of singing. Since I've read that, because I was unaware of that until I was doing some research for this uh, broadcast, I've listened to the song several times. And while I think John could have done the jo- song justice, I don't think he would have done it better. Yeah, it'd be a tough call. I'd like to hear John's version of this. I'd like. Yeah, to, I would love to hear. I'd it. like to hear that. You know. Um, uh, yeah, I meant to ask you, push come to shove, John or Paul? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I love them both and I hate having to choose because, you know, they, just, like, you know, the whole thing is loving one, you know, picking one over the other doesn't mean it has to be mutually exclusive. Right. So if I had to pick one, one or the other, I've probably been. Here's, here's, here's the thing is there's probably songs by John that I like more than the songs by Paul, but there's probably more songs by Paul that I like a lot. Mm-hmm. I can get, I can, I can do that. I can. So if I were to take my absolute favorites, John would probably dominate the top 20 more than Paul would. Right. But if I went to say the top 50, there's probably more Paul songs in there than John. Mm-hmm. You're probably right on that. Um, so it's t- it's a tough call. Well, when I'm ever asked that question, I immediately, without hesitation, say John. And then about a nanoseconds later, I'll go, but. <laughs> so, but for me, it's it's it it's it's John. I, I but I probably listen to Paul. For example, uh, Band on the Run and Venus and Mars. I just think those are two of are, are just incredible albums they are just phenomenal band on the run john actually said if you want to hear a beatles album go listen to band on the run it's it's kind of a spiritual successor to the theme albums like sergeant peppers yes but you want to hear a real beatles album where ringo sings all of the songs get the greatest oh yeah the greatest is a flat-out beatles album with Ringo singing all the lead parts on it. Didn't he get John and Paul on that album? Yes, all of them. John, Paul, and George are on that album doing different tracks. So you can do with the greatest what we're doing right now, saying, well, that's a John song, that's a George song, that's a Paul song, but Ringo's singing them all. And Klaus Vormann, uh, uh, many band members that were both part of wings and part of john's group afterward are playing on that album so ringo it's almost like he cleverly said i think i want to do a beatles album but i can't get them all back together together well i can get john and some of his friends on these songs and paul and some of his friends on these songs and george will come over and play acoustic guitar and lead for this song it's a beatles album with ringo singing all the songs well, now, now John wrote the greatest. Yes, he? John wrote the greatest, and I think two other songs on the album. Uh, and Paul either recorded or played with or had co-writing that he didn't sign for, or he wouldn't have his name. Let Ringo put his name on it. And I, re- I remember at the time saying, "Oh, you know, Ringo's the most popular Beatle because he's the only one that the other guys would all come back for." <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Uh, 
So pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Again, minutia that uh, I hope you guys are enjoying these two Beatle guys geeking out over the Beatles here for a couple of hours. We're enjoying it. Well, I'm having a good time. You bet. Uh, so where are we? We just did Oh Darling. We did. So that moves us to, you know, it, it's a little bit strange when you think about it that they went John, George, Paul, Paul. Paul. Mm-hmm. Ringo. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Right. You, you'd yeah. almost think that they would have gone in the opposite order on the last, on, on, you know, after, after Maxwell Silverhammer have Octopus's Garden, but I guess it's just two whimsical songs in a row and that probably wouldn't, just wouldn't have played right. Exactly. And I think that's exactly why they put Oh Darling between those two. Uh, even though it gave Paul two in a row. Um, now, Octopus's Garden, which is the next song, again, a, a, you know, a whimsical, fun uh, uh, song, and the only song that Ringo gets writing credits for, even though I think George uh, helped him with it. Uh, from what I remember or read recently somewhere, I think George helped him with this and came up with the lead line. Uh, but it's one of the few songs that Ringo actually wrote most of himself, uh, along with What Goes On and Don't Pass Me By, also helped by George. Uh, George and Ringo were were mates, were good buddies, good friends. And George and Paul, I mean, George, in fact, it's after they broke up, uh, George and John hung out together, George and Ringo hung out together. Paul didn't really hang out with them after the Beatles. I mean, they would show up periodically, but even over the last few years with Ringo and Paul being the last two survivors and they're doing a lot of stuff together, uh, Paul didn't really want to. And it's kind of weird because now we're doing a Ringo song, Octopus's Garden, and a couple of interesting things about this. For this song and back for Yellow Submarine, John thought both Octopus's Garden and Yellow Submarine should be sung by children. He wanted a children's choir or a children's group. He thought kids should be singing children's voices. And Paul vetoed them both, saying, no, we don't have kids on a Beatles album. Just not going to do it. I would have liked to have heard that in the chorus. Not for the whole song. Right. Yeah, I think I agree with you there on both of them, Yellow Submarine and this. I would have liked to have heard that with a chorus. And in this one, Octopus's Garden, when you're hearing the chorus in the background, uh, uh, that part would be really cool as children, I think. Well, a a telling point on this song is that one of the cover versions is by the Muppets. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So it works. It really works that well. And I think John was right on the money. It would work easily. And it's a fun song. And um, and again, kind of, you know, hiding the fact that it's kind of serious. It's Ringo um, kind of saying he'd like to be anywhere but where he is now. And uh, an octopus's garden seems like a really nice, safe, wonderful place under the sea to be. Uh and, and based on my research, again, a lot of Wikipedia in Boy, here. doing but, uh, research. <laughs> the, 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 on, in, in the Wikipedia entry for this song, it says, The idea for the song came about when Starr was on a boat belonging to comedian Peter Sellers in Sardinia in 1968. He ordered fish and chips for lunch, but instead of fish, he got squid. Ooh. It was the first time he'd eaten squid, and he said, It was okay, a bit rubbery, tasted like chicken. <laughs> 
The boat captain told Star how much octopuses travel along the seabed, picking up stones and shiny objects with which to build their gardens. And that's where the song idea came from, apparently. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade he'd let us in knows where we've been in his octopus's garden in the shade i'd ask my friends to come and see We would be warm below the storm in our little hideaway beneath the waves. Resting our heads. Ringo is, I believe, unappreciated on a lot of levels. Yeah. And it's and, and I think part of the reason is what you've just said, that he, he wasn't the genius songwriter that the other guys were. And and make no mistake about it, you know, Lennon and McCartney get the lion's share of the credit, but Harrison was a genius songwriter as well. Absolutely. Uh, but Ringo, apparently, and again, I am not a musician, but I've read several articles about this, where Ringo, especially as a left-handed drummer... Playing a right-handed drum kit... He never changed the drums well, over to be left-handed. Yeah, and that he was revolutionary, and that he did things that other drummers cannot repeat. Absolutely. Even though it sounded like a simple rhythm, and and we're going to get to it much more on the uh, penultimate song on the album. Right. Uh, but he he did things that other people couldn't do, and I think they didn't really. I, I from everything I've read, the people who actually know how to play the drums and the people who know music have an appreciation for him that the lay, average layperson, such as myself, may not be able to appreciate. Well, I have always been a fan of Ringo's drumming. And then it just went up by leaps and bounds when I found out the story of, one, how he came to the Beatles, and then realizing that he was left-handed, he still is left-handed, but because he played with so many bands, he was like the it drummer to get with your band in the early 60s in, in London and England and where these guys were coming from, right? Liverpool, all. He was it. And it's a really funny story when they were going to uh, approach Ringo for the first time to ask him to play with them. They went into this club where they, Ringo said, yes, come over. I'll be at so-and-so club at a certain time. I'm really resisting trying to do Beatle uh, voices here because all my be- all my Beatle impressions come from Yellow Submarine or the Beatle cartoon show. So it does not really sound like the real Beatles. But um, but Ringo apparently said, yes, come over and I'll talk to you. And they went to meet him for the first time. And they were totally intimidated by him because John, Paul, and George were beer drinkers playing the Cavern Club, playing dingy dives and you know getting their act together basically playing covers of everybody else but Ringo was the drummer for Rory Storm or Ro- I forgot the name of the band just I just went for blank 
But anyway, Beatles, he was playing with the number one band in London at the time. And when they went into this um, uh, club to meet him, Ringo was sitting at a table by himself, and he, he had uh, a suit on, a three-piece suit, rings on. I mean, he had the Ringo look already. The hair was combed back. He had dark glasses on, and he was drinking a mixed drink, not a beer out of a bottle, not a leather jacket guy, because John and Paul and George were leather jacket, you know, they were rods of the mods and rocker thing going on. Uh, so, you know, they thought, wow, this guy, he's older than them. He's got it all together. He's the number one drummer. He'll never come play with us. He's too good for us. They really were intimidated by Ringo. And they invited him to play with them for the first time to come up. And he would periodically come up, do a couple of songs with them, and then go back and play with his other band until they, until Brian Epstein finally went and offered him a deal he couldn't refuse. But uh, I thought that was interesting that right off the bat, originally, they were intimidated by Ringo. That is, that's, that's a great story. And he never liked drum solos. How about that? Which we'll get to in a minute. <laughs> And, and another, just another, uh, you know, thing from my memory is I remember seeing an interview with John and Twistle from The Who, and he was talking about how the bass player and the drummer, you know, are intertwined on the song and how they have to work off of each other yes. so much. Yes. And he talked about how difficult it is with Keith Moon because Keith Moon would just go anywhere in a song. Yes. You, you know, you, you didn't know where he was going to go. And he talked about how Ringo somehow the conversation went over to him and he talked about the, you know, the genius of Ringo in that he would take complex things and make them seem so simple mm -hmm. that, that they weren't simple at all, but he would make them seem that way. And, and the way he described it, he was a bass player's dream. Any of their great songs. Stop. Wait a minute, Mr. Post. It starts off with Ringo hitting the drums. It's Ringo. So anybody who undercuts Ringo, you're going to have to fight me for that because, <laughs> you know, there were four of them. There's a reason they got rid of Pete Best and wanted Ringo. Pete Best was better looking. He was all showmanship and all this other stuff, but he wasn't the drummer that Ringo was and is to this day. I saw him on TV not too long ago uh, promoting he's got a new album out. Well, new now. It's three or four months old now, I guess. But the sucker will still do concerts. He's 74 now, I think. And he's still doing, uh, you know, almost a 90-minute show. One of, one of my best friends went to see him two weeks ago. Did he? Oh, man. I'd love to go see him. It was him. awesome. I'll bet In fact, he, he, uh, you know, he, he took a little footage with his camera, you know, video footage, and, and posted it on Facebook. Oh, outstanding. Cause, cause, just, just fun stuff. Yeah. I, I, I really need, do need to see him before he decides to stop touring. Okay, back to Abbey Road. And we're almost ready to end side one of what used to be vinyl. With an eight-minute song. Seven minutes and 44 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> I want you, she's so heavy.
And you just gave all the lyrics. And I did. I just gave all the lyrics. <laughs> or almost. almost. And John wanted it that way. <laughs> you John, we're, we're talking about, again, uh, gee, who wrote this song? It's, you know, almost 100% John. Um uh, John is also doing uh, the Moog synthesizer. George bought a Moog synthesizer. Um, it might have been back in Revolver days or Sgt. Pepper days, and they rarely used it. But uh, Abbey Road has a lot of Moog synthesizer on it with sound effects and swishing sounds and organ sounds. and uh, A lot of times that's John doing it on the Moog synthesizer and uh, John wanted this to be pretty simple as what it is and it is what it is it's uh, John talking about Yoko I want you and in this term she's so heavy boys and girls back in olden times heavy was kind of a phrase that we used to mean really cool or awesome it would be and deep man that's heavy dude that's really heavy, man. What That was even before dude. It was man. Man, that's heavy. Meaning very deep, very, very spiritual, very thought-provoking. You got to peel off a few layers to get down to that's heavy. And so what John was saying in this song is, I want you, she's so heavy. So I want you, and now he's going to, second part, and I'm going to tell my friends why I want her. Because she's so heavy. This song contains, this song contains a total of fourteen. Is that what words. it is? Fourteen. I never counted them. <laughs> I, I didn't either. Uh, oh. <laughs> again, my Get research. research. Uh, fourteen words I, I in love, a seven and a half minute song. I love this song because of the way it shifts from a bluesy jazz sound to prototype heavy yes, metal to almost psychedelic metal and, and a very and again i don't know music but a very very repetitive chord structure it's exactly what it is it's three chords and it's the same pretty much they repeat it over and over and over again over and over but and just over. getting it seems like it seems like the tempo just kind of picks up slightly does to, and it to intensify it i'm sorry it does. It does intensify. And that's another beautiful thing about it is it starts very simply. I want you. She's so heavy. And it's uh, a guitar and a bass doing the exact same thing an octave apart. But then it builds. And then he brings in the Moog synthesizer for background sounds. And all of this other stuff is happening. But the same rhythm, the same structure uh just goes on and on but it builds and 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 then it stops which is also revolutionary for just end what what you know and again this is in the days where albums had two sides yeah this was the end of the first side yeah and it builds to that crescendo and it just ends just stops and it and, it, and if you're sitting stop. there in your house when that happens, <laughs> then you hear the needle run to the end of the album, yeah. lift up, and it ends. Because, uh, yeah, and it this album, by the way, I like to listen to stuff through uh, a good pair of studio quality headphones. And um, this album in the headphones, uh, it just, it just, it'll blow you away. And that's why I really like listening to it now uh, with modern technology. Because you don't have to get up and turn the album over after this song. Uh, this was also John. This is very, very John, the whole thing. And it was actually, he's the one in the studio listening back 
went to George Martin and said, stop it right there, Colt. It was John's idea to end it, Colt. And I, I talked earlier about how you could hear, you know, how they were developing into solo artists. Mm -hmm. And this album, this song could easily go on one of John's solo albums. It could have fit on any of his first two or three solo albums. This song would have fit perfectly right on that. Both a great solo John song, but it's quintessential Beatles. This is Beatles kind of pushing that envelope between blues rock and roll psychedelic rock and roll what is this you know it's almost cream it's almost humble pie it's almost you know stuff way before any of those other guys and it's it's amazing when you think about it because it's one of the most simple songs lyrically and musically yes so so simple that myself who has no musical background can hear the simplicity of the notes and yet that's the genius of it yes and it's gone on to be a very influential song despite its simplicity or more likely because of its simplicity. And a great way to end side one. They were two distinct sides and this album has a distinct side one of individual songs differs from side two. Mm -hmm. Well, except for the first song of side two could easily have been on side one. Easily. And it could also be in uh, any one of George's first solo albums. It, it would absolutely fit right in on All Things Must Pass. All Things Must Pass, exactly. You, you, it would fit seamlessly on there. Uh, but, but once you get past that, yes. then, you, then you start getting the true side two difference. Right. So side one ends, as we said, with this song, Building, 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 I Want You, She's So Heavy, Ah, and then Stopping Cold. Silence, flip the album over, and then this beautiful little guitar. Absolutely perfect way to start side two. Here comes the sun. God, this is so beautiful. One of my favorite versions of this song, of Here Comes the Sun, is a live version that uh, George did with Paul Simon on Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. I have that. That's on the uh, the Nobody's Child album. The Nobody's Child album, exactly. This is how much of a geek I am. Okay, now that happened in the 70s it was in the first early seasons of saturday night live i'm not sure even which season it was but it was very early in the history of saturday night live it still had the first crew you still had belushi and all the regular guys were there it was the you know the the great years of saturday night live and paul simon was the um the guest that night the host and 
I knew early on, I knew earlier in the day that George Harrison was going to be on Saturday Night Live that night. And uh, there's no VCRs. There was no way to record those suckers. Uh, I had a little tape recorder, a little cassette tape recorder. And I taped the microphone to the speaker of my TV set. And when the, when when that started, I hit record and recorded the two songs. They did two songs together, Paul Simon and George Harrison, both on acoustic guitars with nobody, just the two of them. Here Comes the Sun and uh, the Paul Simon song, Homeward Bound. Homeward Bound. And uh, for years, because that wasn't ever released for a long time, that was not released as something you... But for years, I kept that in my car. I listened to it. I still have that. I've... Con- I, I, I converted once everything went digital my little cassette recording that I made off a of TV that night in mono uh, and I listened to that for the longest time until somebody finally released a good version of that and now even on YouTube you can go to YouTube and and uh, Google that uh, George Harrison Paul Simon here comes the Sun and homeward bound and it's absolutely beautiful version the two of them doing the harmony playing the acoustic guitars back and forth with each other uh and then george even doing the second verse of homeward bound oh my god it's just incredible uh well simon's another genius oh oh my god so so brilliant and the fact that he and george uh also became very 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 close friends uh, Paul Simon was one of the last people George saw before he died. They were uh, incredibly close. And their harmonies, you just think Simon and Garfunkel had good harmonies or John and Paul had good harmonies. Listen to that, people. If I haven't told you to do anything yet, go listen to that 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 little um, bit. They did it in the dress rehearsal. I hear there's another song that they did in dress rehearsal that has not been released anywhere. But those two songs back-to-back, Paul Simon simply says, uh, this is my friend George Harrison. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend George Harrison.
faces Little darling It seems like years Since it's been here Here comes the sun Here comes the sun I say It's alright Suitcase and guitar in hand And every stop is neatly planned For a poet and a one-man band Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound Home When my thoughts are skipping Home When my music's playing Home When my love lies waiting Silently for me Every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines And each town looks the same to me, the movies and the factories And every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be Homeward bound, I wish I was My thoughts are skipping home When my music's playing home When my love lies waiting silently for me Tonight I'll sing my songs again I'll play the game and pretend 
But all my words come back to me in shades of mediocrity Like emptiness in harmony I need someone to comfort me I wish I was homebound Home, where my thoughts escaping home Where my music's playing home Where my love lies waiting silently for me Silently for me They do that opening to this incredibly beautiful song, Here Comes the Sun. Uh, A little quick history during the uh, legal battles, the money battles, the ownership battles, the fights that the Beatles were having at this time period. That's something to keep in mind. While they're in the studio recording these things, they're also having to go talk to lawyers and other people to decide how who gets money, and it's all based from that George Klein fiasco. And some of them wanted him to be their new manager, others didn't. There was a lot of fighting going on. During a break from those battles, those those office battles and meetings, as George would say, uh, to get away from the meetings, he went to Eric Clapton, apparently had a house or apartment nearby. So he spent a lot of time at Eric's house and Eric had a garden and he's sitting in the garden uh, and wrote this song in a break from fighting with the. Uh, you know, the court battles. I don't know if it was actually in court, but the meetings, you know, all those meetings where lawyers and the Beatles and some wives and other people were in these rooms yelling at each other about, you know, business stuff. In the studio, he's recording this beautiful, beautiful song, which was written from a break from those fights in Eric Clapton's garden. So. In one of the most optimistic tones of a song ever. I know. I know. And it's written out of frustration. Yes. Absolute so it, it, frustration, it but, anguish. But I, to me, the, the, the part of the song, when I, when I think about it, it almost gives me goosebumps sometimes when I think about it, is when it starts to build up with that optimism and the, the hand clapping comes in. Mm. And and just, you know, it, it's just such such an upbeat. George Harrison had such at least in his songwriting, such a wonderfully optimistic view on life and God and just existence. And it comes through in this song so well. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's just, you know, it, 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 it's like one of these songs that just makes you happy to be alive. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm sure I'm overstating it, but it is. <laughs> it is, but it is. It's a very hopeful, optimistic, and that, again, is why I think it's even more special how beautiful this song is, how optimistic, how hopeful this song is, because he just left literally minutes before jotting this song down in Eric Clapton's garden, left a bitter, bitter fight with his closest friends on the planet. This song, again, starts the second side, and, you know, it it fits so perfectly with the rest of this side. This side, side two of this album, uh, is possibly the best side of music ever recorded anywhere, anytime, any place. 
and then especially when you realize how it came together. And this is no exception. Uh, Here Comes the Sun. Just a beautiful, optimistic song. It's George Harrison. John is doing some with him. They're all doing the clap. All four of them are on this song, which also makes it very special. Yeah, just, uh, you know, it's it's another one of these songs that I risk... uh I risk falling into Chris Foley territory because I just want to just say it's just great. It's just great. It's just great. It is. It's one of my all-time favorite songs. That's it's put it that way. Yeah. On, I, on on possibly my all-time favorite album, it's one of my all-time favorite songs. Yeah, I can agree with you. It's one of my all-time favorite songs on possibly my favorite album of all time. Uh, and again, it leads off this album so perfectly and goes right into the next song. The next again, the post-production. What? After all these songs are recorded, the basic layout, the basic organization of what follows what and how does it follow is one, George Martin, and two, Paul McCartney. And this next song, I think, uh, is is one of John's beautiful songs. It's one of um, his, his, you know, we can say, yes, something is a beautiful song. Here Comes the Sun is beautiful. And then John says, well, I can write a nice melody, too. And uh, the next song after that, second song, side two, is Because. separate uh here comes the sun from the rest of side two and say that you know to me it almost could have been on side one of the album because this is the point in the album where i need to hear everything that's left right i don't want to hear because i want to hear because and then i want to hear everything that comes after that comes after me it it all blends at this from this point forward right even though they don't officially start the so-called medley at this point i agree with you from this point on uh it takes on a life of its own 
Now, the, the quick history with because, because the sky is blue, it turns me on. Um, John and Yoko, Yoko, uh, John was kind of laying on the couch, uh, apparently the way the story goes. Yoko was at the piano playing Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. And John said, play those chords backwards, which she did. She played it backwards. And while she played Moonlight Sonata backwards, John wrote the lyrics, I think very lovely lyrics of, uh, you know, talking about why he's in love and stuff. And that's another thing. A lot of people will say, you know, well, Yoko ruined the Beatles or whatever. I'm sure she had a lot to do with it and, you know, irritated a lot of the other guys. But I'm not sure John would have been John without Yoko after a certain point. I agree with that. I I think that's a fair point. And I think she had a tremendous amount of influence on his creativity. She helped to release some of his creativity. Yes. Uh, That said, in John's solo albums, I will generally play the John songs and skip over the And skip the Yoko songs. Yeah. But Double Fantasy still makes me cry. I that's just... That's just a brilliant, brilliant album, Double Fantasy. And yeah. knowing everything around it, I still have a hard time sometimes even listening to the really upbeat songs on that album because, well, because. <laughs> I, remember, I remember I was in Manhattan shortly after John was killed. Mm. And uh, we, we were, I think we went to Rockefeller Center to the skating area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we were walking through Manhattan afterwards, and there was a limousine stopped at a red light. And it was Yoko. Oh, man. And and I just remember, you know, like people like looking in and everything. And, and I looked in yeah. and I just I, I made eye contact with her and I just waved. Yeah. And she waved back. Yeah. And that was it. That was my whole encounter with her. But she waved cool. back to me. You've and I actually thought, made eye contact thought, you know with Yoko Ono. Yeah, I thought that's good enough. That's all she needed to do. That's it. And, and for, for all the criticism she gets. It actually felt very nice. Yeah. Well, you know, I took this philosophy early on. Uh, when people in in real time in the late sixties, when John and Yoko became an item uh, and everybody, the newspapers were hating him, you know, everything was just, Oh, she's ugly. She's terrible. How could he leave his gorgeous blonde wife for that ugly, ugly? I mean, they were ruthless to this woman. They were terrible. Well, I took the attitude because I was such a fan of John Lennon. I thought, if that's the woman he has chosen, that's the woman he wants, that's the woman that makes him happy, that's the woman that's opening up his creative juices, more power to her. Go go for it. I I totally disregarded all of the negative stuff right off because I had so much respect for John. That woman completes him. And if that's the way he feels, then I'll have nothing to say negative about her. Now, the song Because is followed by another really good song in which some people will also say starts the medley, but it doesn't. Mm-hmm. You never give me your money You only 
But now we really get into the the 16 minutes that you know that that makes this an iconic album. We could almost say it's been a great album right up to this point. And if we didn't get the last 16 minutes, we've had six really, really, really good songs. Absolutely. But what they did was take three John songs, three Paul songs, put them together with some incredible. Uh, production work by George Martin and Paul in the studio and give us 16 minutes of of just great outstanding not done before this point copied by practically everybody that's ever picked up a guitar you know there are not enough superlatives about the rest of this album part of it was done uh, during the Abbey Road studio recordings part of this were recorded during uh the white album and even the let it be sessions uh and it's going to be a challenge for me editing this because what i want to do lovely listeners as as our friend mr Leyland would say lovely listeners i really want to play this this 16 minutes this medley uninterrupted to hear the entire thing as it should be i think i think that's a good goal, <laughs> but I think ultimately you're going to have to break it up. Got to break it up. And we got to tell the listeners, you know what? You really do need to listen to this whole side uninterrupted. Uninterrupted. You need to put this song. After this- you're done lis- listening to us talk about each song, go get this album if you don't already have. Right from the, the beginning of this, um, the piano that starts this, the fall, you never give me your money starts the medley. Um uh, this is Paul basically talking about George Klein and the business problems uh, that they were having about you never give me the money. You just give me, you know, bullshit. You talk to me all the time. You say you're going to do this, but you never really give us any of the money. Where's the money? Uh, so this is a, came directly from that. Uh, John actually played some of the piano parts to this during the uh, White Album recording. And you hear some of that later. But the main piano that you hear from this, this is Paul. This is a Paul song about the problems going on. And I consider it part of the medley, even though the song after the, particularly because the song after this kind of goes right into the medley. There's no real break. Mm -hmm. Um, But a lot of people do not give this credit as part of the medley because it is a completed song unto itself, where from this point on, after you never give me your money, it's partial songs from John, three songs from John, partial, never finished, then three songs from Paul, ending with the great drum solo, and then that fighting guitar lead of, of uh, Paul, George, and John all playing lead guitar. So, You Never Give Me Your Money, beautiful, 
beautiful Paul. Very typical, very Paul, very melodic. Very personal sounding. Like like not bombastic at all. For for again, you know, we're we're considering because and you never give me your money is kind of the start of the medley, even though they're really not. But it's just they just belong together because of the way this album is put together. This album is so masterfully put together that they just flow they flow. so well yes. and and this this song it's like i said it's such a such a such a slow personal beginning and then moves on to when it gets to the next next song it stays that way it doesn't just build into it it but when it does it does so in a bombastic way right. so this is just so, just such a nice way to come into it gently yes and from just the musical standpoint not even worrying about what they're saying or the lyrics just the music like you're saying it starts out very nice just paul on the piano you never give me your money you only give me your funny feelings so i can imagine now knowing the history knowing that this comes directly from the same meetings that George left and said, I need a break, went out, sat down and wrote, here comes the sun in the garden. Paul goes to another part, another place, wherever he went, and writes this, coming from the same meetings of lawyers and business people and fights and arguments to two of the most beautiful songs on the album. Except where where George is, is a beautiful uplifting optimistic tune this one is a beautiful kind of almost spiritual sounding and yet very bitter very so. bitter and depressing i mean if you just read the lyrics it's it's uh, it's a down song it's a down it's a downer man but it's it's uh it's pretty you know yeah, it, it sounds it pretty is. um and again, it flows so beautifully to what is really considered now the beginning of the, quote, the medley. And it starts with uh, John's Sun King. And it's the Sun King medley. Sun King is a partial song that John never finished. In fact, the first three songs here are John. It's it's Sun King, Mean Mr. Mustard, and Polythene Pam. Those are John songs with John playing with words, uh, and he is a wordsmith. He's he he loves words, and uh, Happy Kringle Bingle Doggle, whatever. All of his words are, you know, uh, all over the place, and they mean stuff to him. And you can try to make them mean stuff to you, but uh, they're really just stuff in his own life. This is this is John's stuff. And just to, to go with some connections on this, you know, we open this side with Here Comes the Sun, and 
we open this song with "Here Comes the Sun King." Yes, and then we then we get some uh, some false romance language, some basically romance language gibberish. Effectively, <laughs> <laughs> I, re- I remember as a kid, you know, my my uh, my mom came from a, a household uh, where her you know her parents emigrated to America from Italy, or immigrated to America from Italy uh, when she was. I guess just before she was born, she was mm. the first one in her family born in in the United States. So in her household, they spoke fluent Italian. Mm. And I remember listening to the song and saying, "Mom, what are they saying here?" And she was like, <laughs> "She was like, I don't know what they're saying. They're yes. singing some sort of dialect here. I have yeah. no idea." Yeah, there's no idea what they're saying. It means something to him. There were words, but they didn't make sense together. Quando para mucho mi amore. Cake and eat it too. I mean, really. Well, mi amore is easy enough to figure out, you know. Quando yes. you could figure out, yeah. But it just there was no sense to the words. He just took, you know. I guess it, it was more Spanish than Italian. But he took, uh, you know, again, Romance language words and just put them together. And put in a them way together. That they sounded nice. Uh, it, yeah, it's it's John playing with words and melodies. Well, I just want to make one more connection there too, because in Mean Mister Mustard, he mentions his sister Pam. Worked in the shop. She never stopped. She's a go-getter. Right. And then we go right from that to Polythene Pam. Yes. And and again, now here we, we have some uh, jarring connections between the songs. Sun King is such a slow, melodic, with beautiful harmony type song. And then we cut into Mean Mr. Mustard, which is a very raw vocal song. And then we cut from that into Polythene Pam with a very... Uh, striking guitar in it so it gets the intensity comes and it doesn't come gradually building up but it comes in steps that are jarring and yet play together very well and i you know the the jarring steps i think you credit john to john and you give you your hats off to him that he is able to to take these steps and then you give George Martin and I guess Paul McCartney the credit for putting them together in a way where despite the fact that they're so dramatically different, they blend together into such a nice medley. And then we have those three and then we have a break. Right. I can never listen to any one of these from, like you were saying earlier, I can't listen basically from um, any of these songs in this medley by themselves without hearing the rest of them. I don't, I don't want to hear Polythene Pam all by herself. Even the next three now, we get to the Paul songs of the medley, um, uh, starting off with She Came In Through the Bathroom Window. And it just picks up the tempo. So it's building from Sun King. It steps up a little bit to Mean Mr. Mustard, Sleeps in the Park, Shaves in the Dark, Trying to Save Paper. 
And then Paul takes it up just a step further. It goes up another little beat up in both uh, tempo and in key signature. It steps up again with She Came In Through the Bathroom Window, which is based on a story of a woman who did break into Paul's apartment through the bathroom window and created all kinds of problems. That went on for quite a while. It's a true story, and almost all the lyrics of She Came In Through the Bathroom Window just talk about that event. Paul now doing that, going from the John bits to now the Paul bits. She came in through the bathroom window, protected by her silver spoon. And now she sucks her thumb in wonder. By the banks of her old lagoon. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 a true story, and yet it seems silly when when you when you to put it into lyrics. Exactly. And then, coming from that, Paul once again says, "Okay, let's bring it back down to start the end of the thing, the end of you know." So she came in through the bathroom window, ends on a really nice chord that is then actually used by Paul's piano again. And if I remember correctly from my research that I did a week or so ago, Golden Slumbers was taken from a traditional, like, 16th century poem of some kind. I can give you this. Oh, you have the information, by all means. Golden Slumbers is based on a poem, Cradle Song, a lullaby by the dramatist Thomas Decker. The poem appears in Decker's 1603 comedy, Patient Grizzle. Wow. And it it starts off as a beautiful lullaby, and he even says he's going to sing a lullaby. Yes. But the the vocals are not something to put you to sleep by (laughs) when he gets to it. No, once he gets into it, it's it's Paul, it's powerful. It's absolutely powerful. Uh, He said he wanted to write a traditional lullaby, and it might start off that way, like you say. I think it starts that way with once there was a way to get back homeward. I mean, that's yes. it's, it's just beautiful. It's it's melodic yes. and it's relaxing. And then the words, yes. golden slumbers fill your eyes, smiles await you when, when you rise, which I assume are from that poem, are also very comforting. But he sings it in such a powerful voice. Once there was a way. Get back homeward Once there was a way To get back home Sleep pretty darling Do not cry And I will sing 
It's Paul doing piano, and I think George Martin did the orchestral arrangements as it goes from Golden Slumbers into the next song, Carry That Way. It's George Martin that added the orchestral arrangements and did some piano, I think, on this as well, backing up Paul. We talked about iconic before, and to me, the orchestration in this is iconic. Yes. When they get into the bum, 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 bum. It's just, to me, it, it's like, it gives me goosebumps. The goosebumps. And it also calls back to what I just did was, you never give me your money. You never give me your money. Exactly. And from what I understand, that is partially piano played that Paul played during the White Album. Uh, he didn't have all the lyrics, but he was humming it and teaching it. And they used some of the piano lines from that, plus George Martin, plus Paul re-recording some stuff and adding uh, orchestral uh, accompaniment to this to when it gets bump bump bottom boy you're gonna care and then it gets into carry that way so much going on both musically and lyrically and stuff that one had been done it's typical Beatles Sgt. Pepper Magical Mystery Tour Day in the Life I Am the Walrus it's typical and yet it's new and fresh for the first time which leads you to the very end of this thing the the end part which again you, you, you have to say oh my god they are the greatest rock and roll band ever and if there was any doubt to that, as Carrie, that weight goes on and on and builds into the very, you know, not the very last song, which was a secret hidden delayed song, but to the song called The End, this is an amazing song to end this sucker. And it's all three. It's John, George, and Ringo, I mean, and Paul, at their very best, at the peak of their both um, recording abilities and their musicianship. Uh, for the longest time, I just assumed that uh, in the end, this at the great end of this medley, when you get this great drum beat to start it, Ringo's only solo. Yeah, so they had to trick him to do a drum solo in here. Yeah, the legend has it that they recorded that with guitars and that they just kind of faded the guitars out in yes. the post-production. So, so to get to get Ringo to give the solo that they wanted him to give, that he always resisted. Resisted, exactly.
And that just, again, I mean, the character of Ringo Starr. I assumed, like everybody did, Paul played bass, John played rhythm guitar. If there's a lead guitar being played, it's George. Well, when you get to the end, which is the name of this song, that's the end, John said, we need to have uh, a lead guitar in this song. This song needs lead guitar. Or George did. George said, well, we need to put a lead guitar in this. And John said, let's make it a, let's, let's all do it. Let's all do it. And we'll choose the best one for it. And then it became a battle of lead guitars. And Paul said he volunteered to start it. So after the drum gets into this thing, and then you hear these, it's a battle of the three of them playing. It's first Paul, then George, then John. So if you listen, and then they repeat it. And so if you listen carefully, you will hear the style, and you, as particularly if you listen to later McCartney and Wings albums where Paul does play a lot of lead guitar, you'll be able to pick it out immediately that the first eight bars of this, it's Paul. The way he starts, it's a Paul lead guitar. He's, he reuses this lead in other songs with Wings. Then it's George. You hear George's clean sound come right after the Paul sound. And then followed by the raspy, hard sound of John. I don't even know what I don't really know a superlative I don't know a word to put that for a fairly short just like the drum solo is fairly short uh, considering drum solos that came after it and then lead guitar bits both of them are fairly short but they're very distinctive in their individual sounds and tastes that come together so beautifully and when I hear it I think that's rock and roll. Put side two of Abbey Road on when you're not going to be interrupted by anything and turn it up. And when you finish listening to this, then still tell me the Beatles suck. <laughs> and then they take it out. After showing we can rock with anybody. Yes. They take it out with one of the most beautiful lines delivered one of the most beautiful ways that's in the end, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love that you make. No, isn't it brilliant? Just, it's, it's brilliant. It's so absolutely brilliant. brilliant. So beautiful. And it leads up to it so well. So much rock and roll coming right at you. And then it is so perfect. Absolutely perfect way. And this would have been a perfect album had it ended right there. 
Had there not been another syllable uttered, another chord played, another guitar stroke, another piano key made, it would have been perfect. And originally, it was intended to end right there. But after 14 seconds of silence... (laughs) Home. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Now, Her Majesty... As we hear a little bit of a mag- Her Majesty as it plays. We can uh, hear all of Her Majesty. Yeah, we can hear all of Her Majesty. It's, uh, what, 47 seconds or something. It's not long. I think it's, I didn't even think it was that long. I thought it was yeah. 21. It's short. really short, and it goes from right channel all the way to left channel all the way. Um, but uh, it was supposed to be part of the medley and put in between. I forget where actually between right after mean Mr. Mustard or polythene Pam, or it was supposed to be in the medley with the yeah, other my, ones. My notes say between mean Mr. Mustard and polythene Pam. Okay, good. It, okay. But it, it sounds to me like they made the right choice. Cause I don't think it would have fit with exactly what we're talking about, how the music was escalating at that point. Exactly. I think it would have brought it too far down. Exactly. And, uh, luckily George Martin and Paul realized that in post-production And apparently it was an accident because it was put at the end of the tape, but not was, it was never really meant to be pressed on the original album, but uh, somehow either George Martin or one of the tech guys or something happened. That's why the 14 seconds, because they just forgot it was there and it made it to the album on the original release of the album and the cassette. It was before CDs, but on the cassette or the vinyl album, her majesty is not part of the credits. It's just not listed. It's not there. And I still, to this day, remember hearing this album for the first time in my bedroom, 1969, listening to it, um, on my little, portable stereo record player and when the song the end ended with you know and in the end all you you know the love you make take is equal to the love you make and hearing that die out with the chord thinking oh my god i'm drained i really thought it was over i thought it was over and there was nothing else listed on the album i'm sitting there reading everything on the album and trying to get every liner note and picture i can get from it and then all of a sudden that chord hit boom, which is the last chord from Mean Mr. Mustard. And that and they even left that part of it in. And goes right into Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. You know who Her Majesty is? Uh no, I don't. Queen Elizabeth II. Oh, they were talking about the actual queen? <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs> well, that's funny. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I wanna tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. My Majesty's a pretty nice girl, someday I'm gonna make a mine. Oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mine. Uh, be careful, boys and girls. If you get into the Beatles, don't fall down the whole rabbit hole. Yes, jump down the rabbit hole. Just jump, right, with both feet. Don't there's, crawl, don't slide. You know, jump. There's, there's, there are very few magic, very few musical rabbit holes that anybody can argue would be a better one. Bringing it all sometime around and kind of, you know, bring this back to some kind of a conclusion here. 
which is really tough because again, <laughs> again, folks, you got two Beatle fans who could literally talk Beatles for hours and hours and hours. I, I got to tell you, I mean, I've been talking Beatles and I love talking Beatles, but I've really enjoyed listening to you talk Beatles. And I hope the people who've been listening have, have felt the same <laughs> way because you've been a wealth of knowledge and more important than the knowledge, as important as the knowledge is enthusiasm. And I love listening to that. I think it's the beauty of the podcast and why I had to jump into the podcast world uh, is because my friends and family are really tired of hearing these stories <laughs> to me now getting to, to, you know, gush a little bit about my favorite album on long play, which happens to be from my favorite rock and roll band of all time. It's just very special. And to get the chance to do that with another guy who, you know, doesn't mind me gushing a little bit about it. More than, more than doesn't mind. Really enjoys. Well, thank you. Because, I, Like I said, I just hope the people listening enjoy it as much as we do. Paul, this has just been such a blast. I can't tell you. It's been you an know. absolute pleasure for me as well. And it just makes me want to think of, okay, what's the next album that Bob and I can do together? I just don't think any other music has ever made me feel or get me excited like the Beatles do. Well, you know what I'm going to say? I'm going to throw out there because... I feel the same way. And what I want to know is if, if you want to hear Bob and I do more Beatles, just let us know. Facebook, us email, know. whatever. Send it to uh, two true freaks at gmail.com because I'll be able to get those. Oh, good. Two true freaks at gmail.com. Well, Paul, before we do get out of here, I know most of the freaks know where you are, but uh, in case they don't, in case I only listen to long play. <laughs> well, my, my primary show is Back to the Bins, which comes out every Saturday on the Two True Freaks Network. You can get it at twotruefreaks.com or Two True Freaks presents Back to the Bins on iTunes. And then we are temporarily on hiatus, but we do a show called Listen to the Prophets, where we are indexing deep Star Trek Deep Space Nine, one episode at a time, going through the series. We're currently in the mid to later portion of the second season and we have seven seasons in total to cover so we enjoy doing that as well i do that one with andy leyland and uh sean engel why don't we why don't we just flip this back around and why don't you tell everybody what your other main show is well my other main show is a little show called uh superman forever radio and it's supermanforever.com and it's on itunes and wherever you get your uh pods podcasts um but uh, it's a Superman show. I talk about Superman. It's just me uh, talking about what I like about the character in some aspect or another. So it's Superman Forever Radio. I started with episode 79, by the way. That show uh, was uh, originally started by the awesome J. David Weeder. And when he decided to move on and do other podcasts, uh, he offered it to me. Offered and said, how would you like to take over the Superman Forever show? So I jumped in at episode 79 uh, thanks everybody for listening i really appreciate your time and thank you for doing this with me bob oh my pleasure anytime paul anytime i think it was in a way the feeling that it might be our last so let's just show them what we can do let's show each other what we can do and let's try and have a good time doing it
magical. And there's some really loving, caring moments with between four people. Um, a hotel room here and there. A real, a really amazing closeness. Just <sighs> four guys who really loved each other it was it was pretty sensational. You know, they gave their money and they gave their screams, but the Beatles kind of gave their nervous systems, <laughs> which is you know, a much more difficult thing to give. Well, I'm really glad that most of the songs dealt with love, peace, understanding. You know, it really did. If you look back, there's hardly anyone says, go on, kids, tell them all to sod off, leave your parents. It's all very, all you need is love. Oh, John's give peace a chance. The very good spirit behind it all. It's just natural. It's not a great disaster. People keep talking about it as if it's the end of the earth. It's only a rock group that split up. It's nothing important. You know, you have all the old records there if you want to reminisce. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Ah. One, two, three. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O. T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S You can email 2TrueFreaks directly at 2TrueFreaks at gmail.com 2TrueFreaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening, and join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks.
Thanks, Mo. I'd like to say thank you on behalf of the group and ourselves. I hope we pass the audition. <laughs>